Well, welcome back. It has been a while since we met in November, so Elizabeth and I thought it would be a, a good idea to just review where we've been um, and, and where we are with Esther instead of jumping right in. Um, but there were a few things, if you recall, way back before we even opened the book of Esther that, that we want to remember about the book itself. And, and first is that name of the Persian king may be different in your version of the Bible than in that of the person next to you. And it all depends on the process taken to translate the Bible. Both names are accurate. It is not anything to do with the accuracy of the translation. One is just the Greek version of the name, which is Xerxes, and one is the Hebrew version of the name, which is Ahasuerus. Um, the same king, same person, still both accurate translations, um, but the ESV, which is what we've printed out in your handouts and what I use for teaching, uses a Hashverosh, so that's the name that, that I will be saying. Um, in addition to King Ahasuerus, there are a lot of names in this book, and the names were written and preserved in scripture, and while we may wonder why they are included and why they are important, um, but what we have to do is trust that they are there for a reason and that their names are included in scripture and that is enough to make them important. And so you wanna try your best at the pronunciation. Even if it isn't 100% correct, we wanna still write them correctly. We want to try to say them with some level of, um, uh, of, of at least attempting to be accurate because they are in scripture and it is a part of scripture and they were preserved there for a reason. Uh, and then one final thing that makes the book of Esther interesting is, is that throughout the Bible we see God work in mighty ways. Um, when we studied the book of Daniel, God saved Daniel's friends from the fiery furnace in a mighty and miraculous way. And what are some ways that God showed his power in that instance? If you think about the fiery furnace, that story. How did he save the, the, the three friends? They didn't burn. They didn't smell like smoke. They walked around and there were three of them that went in, but when they were walking around, how many were there? Four. They were joined by somebody else in the fire. But it was hot enough, that fire was hot enough to kill the guards that were putting them in into the fiery furnace. But that's not the way that God works in the book of Esther. And God still delivers the Jewish people. Oh, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, he still delivers the Jewish people, but it's through completely ordinary means. It is ordinary decisions, ordinary actions. He doesn't swoop in and just wipe out Haman and King Ahasuerus and the rest of the Persians, but he still protects his people. And this is one reason that the book of Esther resonates so deeply with us, because that's the way that 
a lot of times God works in our own lives today is those small little decisions, ordinary actions where we can see God work. But it isn't just a lack of might and power that's missing from this book, but as you're already aware, God is not named. He's not referenced anywhere. There's no reference to the synagogue or to priests. But just because the name and the religious items aren't mentioned does not mean that it's the absence of God. Because God is watching and working for our good even when our circumstances don't appear that way. The events in this book are not determined by chance. There is no chance in this book at all. It is all determined by the control of God. And that's, that's just one of the things that makes this book relatable. It's that providence of God, and, and in particular is the providence of God within a pagan government. Esther and Mordecai lived in a world led by a pagan ruler, and yet we see that no pagan leader can thwart God's providence. God used King Ahasuerus just the way he was to make his own plan happen. So those are the, the keys that we have to remember throughout the whole book. Um, but just for some background and, and a refresher, the author of the book is unknown. Some say it's Ezra, others say it's Mordecai. We don't know for sure. Um, we do know that it, was, it, it would have been written by somebody who was Jewish. Based on the terminology that was used throughout the book, uh, that would have been a Jewish person that wrote it. But it, because we don't know the exact author, we don't know the exact time either, but probably shortly after uh, the reign of, of King Ahasuerus, so sometime around 465 BC is when it was written. And in terms of the purpose of this book, um, for, for the Jewish culture, it's the way to explain the origin of the Feast of Purim. But we won't get there for quite a while. Um, but that's, that's the goal, is to, to show again, once again, the deliverance of God's people, but then why it is that they celebrate this particular feast, uh, the, why the Jewish people celebrate that, that feast. So we are going to read some selections from the book. Um, Melissa helped me hand out the, uh, the post-its. Um, but I would encourage you if, you, if you haven't recently, to just reread re those first three chapters of the book, just to refresh your, your memory on those details, just so that you can um, have it as we move forward, you can recall what it is that, that we studied weeks ago. I had a, a student today in class, they were preparing for midterms this week, and so they were working through a study guide. And he, he comes up and he's holding the paper in front of him and he says, on question 83, or whatever number it was, I, I don't understand why it's not answer C. And I was like, I looked and I worked through the study guide, but I have slept since then. 
I'm going to either need to see the paper or have you read the question to me. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, and he did, it, but I am not one that can remember the details. And so I, that's why I am encouraging you to reread um, so that you can just refresh your memory on those details. And so somebody has Esther 1, 1 through 4. So here's where we meet King Ahasuerus. He's the Persian king. Uh, you've got that timeline in your handouts. So from 486 to 465 BC. Um, and at this point in time, this is after, so, so long before Esther, the people of Israel had been dispersed through the Near East by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, which were then absorbed by the Persians. And that was, that was in the book of, of Daniel. Uh, we see some of that going on. And by this point, uh, some of the Jews had returned to Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt. That's the first chunk of Ezra. But there were no walls in the city, and they were far from being in control of themselves, even though they had been able to return to Jerusalem. And so, so here we have... Jewish people still mostly dispersed throughout the Persian kingdom, but even those who aren't dispersed and are back in Jerusalem are still under the control of King Ahasuerus. And so he rules a large area of the known world at the time, basically from uh, India to Ethiopia. It, it was at that time the largest empire in the world. Um, and the entire Jewish population was under his control. Um, and then we see he likes to throw parties. Not just parties, but lavish, prideful feasts, lengthy feasts. He liked to celebrate. And when he liked to celebrate, he liked to show off. And so um, Esther 1, 10 through 12. So we're introduced to his queen, Queen Vashti, 
Vashti was a trophy wife, um, and Ahasuerus wanted to show her off. This is actually during the, not that first feast, but yet another feast that he was hosting. Um, but Vashti refused. And so why would this have been offensive to Ahasuerus? He was the king. Right. He made a command and it was not obeyed. It was also, she was his, she was his wife, a, a woman, and should have been, should have been submissive to him anyway, especially in that culture. Um, and while we may not know her reasoning for refusing, we know the reaction of the king and what, what, was, what happened for him. What's it say uh, in verse 12 there? He was enraged and anger burned within him. Not just angry, enraged. It consumed him. And so the king was powerful, but what we see is he did not use his power to make good decisions. They are not well-planned and well-thought-out. Um, and, and really, he was angry, but in verse 10, it tells us the heart of the king was merry with wine. And so alcohol was actually also a, a part of what was, was impacting him. Um, he would have been drunk. That would be what Mary with wine would mean, that he was drunk. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I can't speak for all of you, but I have seen people who are just cannot function at all because they are so drunk. But I've also seen ones who just have a couple of drinks they can still walk a straight line, but you try to play a board game with them and they can't handle it. They can't think clearly, right? There's, if there is something where they have to use some form of logic, it's not happening. And so we know that his, um, his critical thinking was impaired. He had had this drunken whim to show off the beauty of his wife and to show off her crown, and it did not work how he wanted, so he threw a temper tantrum. And then he listened to his advisors who told him, uh, who, who told him what he should do, and that's um, Esther 1, 18 through 21. So 
Mimikin makes this suggestion, right? And what does he suggest should happen? Replace to replace Vashti, to, to banish her, never to be seen by the king again. And then what was the other part? A new decree just signs that thing like nothing, right? And he wants all women to give honor to their husbands, right? Now, a decree is a law that everyone in the empire will know about, and it's a law that cannot be canceled or repealed. And so this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. That's what verse 21 says. But we can look at it and we can see that that advice was not well thought out. They were probably drinking as well. And while the Persians thought that drinking gave you a higher thought process, we know that it does not. Um, and so it was, it, it was a very prideful, uh, which shouldn't surprise us about King Ahasuerus, um, but a very prideful thing to do. But it was, it was also a very, um, it, it was an overreaction. It was not something that, that really uh, logically made a lot of sense. And so King Ahasuerus, he's banished Vashti from his presence. He's commanded wives to honor their husbands. But the king did not immediately start his search for a new bride. Um, but one day, a couple of years later, we think, and we talked about that some previously, the timing. Um, he came home and he was depressed and he took some advice from his, or he listened to advice from his servants. Uh, and that's Esther 2, verses 2 through 4. And so why is it important to mention that it was these young men who attended him, his slaves, basically? Why is it important to say that they are the ones giving him this advice? Right, they're young men. They're not political at all they are going to be reacting to the emotion because they're going to see the emotion because they are the ones that deal with him in private. So they are responding to emotion. Again, not the most logically well thought out plan. And then what steps do they propose? What do they say he should do? Go find some women, right? <laughs> and then give them makeup and beauty treatments and then pick a new one. 
That's all there is to it, right? So these women were uprooted from their communities. They were confined to the king's harem. Um, while they may have been proud to have been chosen, they would not have had a choice. They would have been taken against their will. Um, and, and so their best hope, I mean, they hoped, of course, to be queen, but they knew out of these hundreds of, of women that their chances were slim. And so there was a very high likelihood that, that they would see the king once and be completely forgotten. And that they, they could not do anything else. Um, they could not marry anyone else. They, they would have just been destined to live in loneliness. And they, they still belonged to the king, so they couldn't even go home. Um, now, custom of the time dictated that Ahasuerus, his, his queen, should have come from one of seven noble families. And so the fact that, um, that it's the servants that are making this recommendation, oh, just pick anybody, instead of those seven noble families making the, well, here is my beautiful daughter, um, it, it, it was very unorthodox. But this contest is what introduces us to our main heroes, Mordecai and Esther. Um, and these are actually the first mention of anyone who is Jewish. We will see Mordecai was an exile and he was the adoptive father of Esther. Um, so he had a level of choice because he could have gone back to Jerusalem, but he did have a level of choice where he did choose to stay in Susa. But it will be used in God's sovereign plan. And so, um, and then we think about Esther. Esther uh, was also named, known as Hadassah. She was orphaned. She was brought up by Mordecai, her male cousin. And, and, but it says she was lovely. Uh, and when physical attributes are shared at that first mention of a person in the Bible or in any writing from that time, it is a special relevance to the story. It's, it is important. Um, so then we get to Esther 2, verses 8 through 11. So we knew, and if we had read verse 7, that, that she, she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And so it shouldn't surprise us that she was chosen as one of these, um, one of these to come and be presented to the, to the king. But you're, um, 
But then we see, we meet Hege. He's the king's eunuch and is in charge of the women. And his whole job was to provide pleasure for the king. Uh, he would have been influential, especially to these women, because he was in charge of the cosmetics and the food and the, the tra etiquette training. He picked who got what servants. He picked where they, where they stayed, what their, which room they had. But he was, he was a pagan um, and, and was basically running the king's brothel. Um, but he found something in Esther that pleased him. And that a eunuch was pleased with Esther tells us volumes, not about her sensuality, but about her winsomeness. He saw something deeper than just her physical beauty. And verse 10 tells us, that she did not tell anyone of her Jewish heritage. And we think about being Jewish, and particularly um, in, in the Old Testament, the, the food laws, the, um, the sacrifice laws, the Sabbath laws, all those things that were supposed to be met as a Jew, but clearly Esther and Mordecai were not fully practicing the Jewish law. Um, likely their home wasn't kosher. They definitely weren't going to the temple because there wasn't one. Um, in, in Susa, there was not, the, they weren't offering sacrifices because priests weren't doing it. Um, and while all these laws were put in place by God to set his people apart, they, you know, they were supposed to stand out in a crowd. Uh, yet they lived, just like most of the other captives of the time. But it doesn't take away from our story. To know that they weren't practicing the way they should does not take away from our story. In fact, it adds to it. Because the Jews may have all but forgotten about God. But God did not forget about them. They may have forgotten their identity, but God had not. And so she hid being a Jew, but she also hid being an orphan. Um, like I said, Ahasuerosh picked not from just those seven families. He just took upwards of 400 women from all across the empire and so he was choosing somebody who wasn't noble, first of all, but to choose somebody who didn't even have a father was unheard of, completely unheard of. And so um, she was keeping it quiet because that's what Mordecai had told her to do. And then we get to... Um, Esther 2, 16 through 18.
So Esther has her chance with the king um, and, and would have had lots of different thoughts going through her head. You know, maybe she decided she was okay being lonely for the rest of her life if it meant not being at if the king's beck and call. Who knows? Um, but she would have been nervous, maybe even afraid. But possibly there was some relief. Okay, I can finally be seen by the king and move on with my life. Um, let's get this over with type of thing. Um, and, and so she, um, Ahasuerus sees her and he is, um, he, he, when it says he loved Esther more than all the women, it's not that it was that, um, deep intimate love at that point it was just a a, a much deeper attraction a, a, an affection for her um and and it was it was an intrigue even that he wanted more of he was looking for a queen um but and and he found he found esther um and the Again, this is another of those ordinary acts, ordinary ways that God orchestrated these events. And so how did King Ahasuerus announce his new queen? He threw a party. Because <laughs> that's what he does, right? Um, and then, but, but, so we have that party, and then we, we have a plot twist. Um, and... Esther 2, 21 through 22. So where was Mordecai? At the, at the gate. And why is being at the gate important? Yeah, that's where the official business of the day was conducted. It was almost like the court um, that we would think about today. And there are a number of, of instances throughout the Bible where important work is, is and important agreements are made at the gate. Um, and so he had some position of power and standing to even be allowed to sit there at the gate and to hear what was going on. Um, it's possible that this was due to Esther's influence, but not, it, it's not specifically stated so it's very possible that he also could have had the position before Esther became um, became queen 
but he still at this point had not revealed his nationality or his, his Jewishness. But we see the hand of God at work still that he was even able to be there um, would have been at, at the working of, of God. And then we get to the palace intrigued. We, but this was very normal at the time um, where two guards or two of the king's eunuchs became angry and they wanted to kill the king. And so Mordecai, he hears what's going on and he chose to do something about it rather than sit back and watch what might happen. Um, and then if you recall, we didn't read this part, but our, our feast-loving king just had it written in the book that his life was saved. He didn't celebrate it. He didn't, um, he didn't reward Mordecai at all. Um, so up to this point, we may have, have thought King Ahasuerosh was the villain of the story. But as chapter 3 begins, we're finally introduced to our villain. So I have Esther 3, 1 through 2, and 5 and 6. And so who was Haman? What, what do we know about him? Agagite. That's King Agag um, is, is what that references. King Agag is the one that Ray actually was talking about in his sermon on Sunday morning. That's the one that was supposed to be completely wiped out by Saul. And Saul didn't obey. And so, so that's, um, that's where the... There's already, when, when the Jews would have read this and seen that he was an Agagite, they would have been angry already. They would have hated him before any other words came out. Just the fact that it was, he was an Agagite. And that was enough. What else? the highest position in the court. He was promoted over everybody else. And then what did the people have to do when they saw Haman? They had to bow down to him. He was honored, at least in action, by the servants at the gate, by all the people at the gate. Um, and as you were, would keep reading, if, if we kept reading in... Um, uh, chapter 3, we would see that Haman is proud, vengeful, and that he had a temper. Um, and, and we see some of this after he finds out that Mordecai does not bow down to him. Um, 
this was not a normal thing. The bowing down to somebody other than the king was not a normal thing. This was not something that the people were really accustomed to. So there had to have been a special edict concerning Haman or people wouldn't have bowed down. Um, and, but that bowing down is not bowing down in worship. It's just bowing down in respect. And so it's not a breaking of a commandment for the Jews to do that. Um, and while we don't know exactly what Haman's thought process is and why it is that, or we don't know Mordecai's thought process, sorry, and we don't know why he didn't choose to bow down, we know that it must not matter because it wasn't preserved, it wasn't in scripture. God is as purposeful in what he doesn't reveal in his word as in what he does. And he doesn't tell us why Mordecai refused to bow. But Haman finds out about Mordecai, and he finds out both that he wasn't bowing down and that he was Jewish, and he takes that opportunity to try to destroy the Jews. And so here's where the principal plot of the book is introduced. It's the attempt to destroy the Jewish people. Um, and so we know Haman's goal. And so in, we're going to see how he intends to make that happen. It's Esther 3, 7 through 11. So Esther had now been queen for about five years. She was still hiding her Jewishness, though now that Haman knows about Mordecai, it, some people may have figured it out, um, but it wouldn't have been well known, and the king wouldn't have, have known it at, by this point. And, and Haman clearly hasn't put it together yet. And so it talks about this casting of pure, 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 sorry. It's the Babylonian word for these dice-shaped cubes that had, instead of dots on them, they had little inscriptions of certain prayers that, that they would, um, they were placed in a jar or in a garment and were, were shaken until one fell out. And that was the divinely approved answer to the question that was being posed. Imagine it kind of like a magic eight ball. 
But what we see is that God was strictly in control of these, because if we think about it, this, or if you, if you um, dig into the Jewish calendar, which there is a listing on your, in your handouts there, but we see this is happening in the first month, and the date that's chosen is all the way in the last month. So there's almost a whole year in time for this to happen. And that wasn't by chance. That was, again, the providence of God at work through these Persian pagans and their practices um, of, of rolling these dice. Casting lots was something that, that you see throughout as the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is ways that God did give advice to his people. So this was not something that was new to the Jewish population either. Um, but Haman had used these, these dice to find his, the lucky day for the destruction of the Jews. Um, and they, he finds the date, then he goes to Ahasuerus, and he went with this bogus scenario, a lot of generalities. He, made, he, he um, exaggerated quite a bit. He didn't give the name of the people that were supposed to be subverting the kingdom. And the fact that one man, Mordecai, disobeyed one law was exaggerated by Haman into the false accusation that all the Jews disobeyed all the laws of the land. Now the Jews were quite widespread throughout the Persian Empire. And although no doubt, there, there is no doubt that Haman was exaggerating, he used a mixture of truth and exaggeration to convince the king. And so Haman gets the ring from the king. That ring granted Haman the authority to act in the king's name. He could write any document he pleased and put the king's seal on it with that ring. And it had to be accepted as law and obeyed. And it cannot be undone. And that's where we left off back in November was the destruction of the Jews. What we are, we'll see next week, or starting next week, is what happens when the Jewish people find out about it. And so um, I, I, I will just look here. So verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at next week, and it's, it's how, um, how Esther and Mordecai respond to, to knowing what's going on, and how the, the Jewish people respond to what's, what's going on in the kingdom. And so you'll be dismissed back to your small groups for some discussion about Esther. Um, and then, yeah, next week, Esther 4, 1 through 11.